Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat podcast. Welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast, Rachel Giacobazzi. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. This is really exciting for us, Rachel. Depending on when this episode is, this is actually the first, you're the first interview on the Blue Hat Podcast. So people may be listening to this in a different order, but thank you so much for uh, agreeing to give us some time and be a part of the first episode. Oh, of course. I'm very excited to be able to be here for the revamp of the Blue Hat podcast coming into Microsoft. This being really close to my one year mark. I'm very excited to be able to enjoy you guys today. Awesome. Well, let's start with with that one year anniversary. What is your role, at Microsoft? What, you know, what do you do, and uh, what do you tell your your family over Thanksgiving? <laughs> yeah, so uh, here at Microsoft, I lead a team called Customer Ready Intelligence. So my team is part of the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Community under John Lambert. And my team is responsible for all customer facing intelligence. And that means that all threat intelligence, so that's written uh, intelligence that is in product or publicly facing like blogs and tweets is produced through my team. Got it. So anyone that is consuming sort of actionable threat guidance, threat intelligence sort of directions from Microsoft, whether that's through products or other means, it's going to flow through your team. It's going to flow through your desk. It's going to be sort of written and massaged and, and storified through yourself and the folks in your group. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. So my team is made up of what we call fusion analysts, and we're really embedded within the research team. So we call ourselves the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Community because it's made up of all these different research teams. And my team embeds within those teams to really look for those stories to bring forward to our customers and then to the larger public. Got it. Do you want to give us an example of one of those stories? I understand that your team published a blog recently from March 13th on an uh, Attack in the Middle campaign. Can you tell us a bit about that and also how your team is involved in pulling together that guidance? Yeah. So Jordan Herman on my team actually worked with several other research teams throughout Microsoft to pull together an amazing blog on adversary in the middle of phishing campaigns. So phishing campaigns are still one of the top attack vectors. And he was able to pull together an amazing write-up on this campaign that really showcased how this phishing campaign was affecting not only Microsoft customers, but affecting a lot of people out there at large. And so we were not only sharing the story of the attack and what could happen, but how others can protect themselves through mitigation and detection. And I think that's really big in threat intelligence is not just explaining the attack, but explaining how people can protect themselves through those recommendations and those mitigation actions. I think it's a, a huge topic because we always forget about, you know, we look at the big things, you know, the big headlines. And then if you really drill down into it, like you said, phishing is like the low hanging fruit, but it has the most impact when it comes to folks falling for that. So I think that's a really important blog post. 
Yeah, yeah. I think when we look at it, everybody really gravitates towards those named actors in when it comes to like the threat intelligence community because yeah. the the names are really what gives you the catchy headlines. But phishing is still makes up the high ninety percent of the attack vectors that are out there, and it is one of the top attacks because it's really hard to protect against it because it has a user element to it, which is hard to protect against, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to have something malicious in order, like inherently malicious in the email itself in order to be a successful phishing campaign. Phishing is this social engineering with traditional attack vectors that combine to create this unique attack that really makes it so widespread out there. Yeah. As employees, we trust. We trust a lot. So something comes in, oh, this looks legit. This looks like it's from my manager or an official Microsoft email. But we're taught to look for those little things. But regular folks that are working, you know, are just they click through. And I, I think that's where um, a lot of the education, such as what you're doing with your blog post comes in play, because that brings it to the to the attention, like, okay, wait, I need to be a little bit more careful, a little bit more you know, focused on what I'm clicking on. So Rachel, looking at this, this blog post from March 13th, uh, a couple things, you've used the word story and stories a few times. I'd love to quickly touch on is that intentional, the way, you know, picking that word story? And do you think of the guidance and the analysis and the reporting that your team writes as a story? And what is sort of that, what does that mean? And then just coming back to that blog post, I'd love to learn a little bit more about if the output is this blog post that anyone can read on the blog, what is the beginning? Like, where are those initial sort of detections happening? Are they being done by your team? Are they being done by other researchers or analysts? Uh, maybe we start with story. Like, why do you call this a story? Why do you call it a story? Yeah. So I think that the great part about threat intelligence is that it falls under analysis and like all good analysis, you can have a ton of different definitions of it. And my definition of threat intelligence is that I like to think of it along the lines of uh, anthropology, right? We're here to kind of tell stories just like a good anthropologist does, right? So we're picking through and looking at observables that are created a lot of times by other analysts. And so kind of to the second question that you have there is where did this story start? And this story started with several different teams and several different analysts and threat hunters and engineers on those teams, as well as products. And what Jordan did is he went through different observables and telemetry and pieces of data, and he stitched together this story, sometimes putting together analysis done by other analysts and by other members of the Microsoft intelligence community and bringing together different pieces of a much larger picture and being able to kind of combine different elements together to tell not only the facts of what happened in the attack, but the context of that larger understanding of what does it mean in a in a sense of what would that mean to the industry, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at the blog post, it doesn't just say like, there was one campaign 
of a phishing attack. It talks about what it does adversary in the middle mean and how is that affecting the bypass of multi-factor authentication and how is Microsoft preventing that not only within product, but how are we suggesting customers mitigate that outside of just product recommendations? And so when we look at that broader context, that's why I say that we are telling stories versus just writing an article. It sounds like you, it's like an aggregation of data and then you write like a journalist. It's a clear, concise story. And then my question for that is your audience is probably vastly different in terms of like this, this group and this group and this group. How do you write it in a way that is concise and clear and technical, but also understandable for those that maybe are less technical than this other group that you're sending it to? Do you write different versions or do you just write one and then it's it's clear for everyone? How does that how does that work? Oh my goodness. That is a great question. And a hundred percent that credit has to go to the amazing people on my team because we hired specifically to answer that problem statement, right? We hired people who had to answer this question before, like, how do you create a nexus between extremely technical and like that executive 10,000 foot level. And so when we were hiring out this team and looking for analysts and specifically writers to tell these stories, we were looking for people that had an understanding of how do you clearly articulate things that could work for a SOC analyst as well as those customers of ours or the people that are reading our blogs that are at that much higher level. And so, like I said, a lot of this has to give, I have to give credit to the amazing team that I work with and those amazing analysts for being able to take that problem set and definitely write for it. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. And that's that's definitely a talent for sure. So Rachel, your team, as you mentioned earlier, takes signal, takes analysis, takes reporting, takes research from sounds like all across the company, and then is tasked with distilling that down into these stories that can be either made public via the blog or put into product channels, et cetera, et cetera. How do you decide which stories to tell? Are you tasked with telling every single story or do you have to go through almost like a newsroom process where you're you're working out what is sort of current, what is trending, what is peaking? Like, how do you do that? Because I assume the number of potential stories out there is very, very large. Yeah, there will always be more to write about than we have the ability to write. Like that's just gonna forever be a fact. And I think that uh, what we try to do is we take a very fact-based approach, right? Because we are first and foremost writing for customers, Right. One of the things that we do is what we write shows up in products. So in Microsoft 365 Defender products, 
So outside of blogs, we do write inside the product. And so what we do is we take telemetry from that product and we understand what is affecting the customers. And so we use that same telemetry that we write about and we look across the board to see what is affecting our customers on a daily basis. Like what are the attacks that they are dealing with? We use that telemetry as one of the points of our analysis to determine like what should we write about? So it's not just like external looking, but actually looking at what is affecting the customers to help us make those decisions. And so that combined with what's happening across all industries and then kind of what's up and coming and like what's the next thing on the horizon, uh, what's being researched about. And so it's definitely not a singular decision, but several data points that are going into that decision to kind of rank what is going to be the next thing that we write about? And then when you write these and you send these out to the customers, is it a mix of, hey, this is just something we want you all to know, or hey, this is something we want you all to know, and here are some action items, like you need to do these things? What is usually the intention? We really try to focus on the action item. We want to make sure that we're making this actionable for customers. You know, yeah. we don't only want to focus on the scary part of it. Right. Like, here is the bad thing that is happening. We really want to focus on, and here is how you can prevent the bad thing. Or, and here is what you should be doing about the bad thing. Uh, and so we really want to focus on that second part and making sure that we are helping uh, not only our customers, but especially with the public blogs, helping everybody understand how they can mitigate these threats. I really appreciate that. I read multiple different things. You know, you read about different things security-wise, you know, internet, and you are like, okay, but but so what do I do? What do I need to do? And I, I love those ones that are concise that say, here's what's happening, and then here's what you should be doing. Because ultimately that's what you want to do to be protecting yourself. And I love that, that that's the focus that you all have with your articles. Rachel, I'd love to come back to this blog again, because I, I, I'd love to just sort of, again, sort of maybe put the, the listener in maybe the, the, the hypothetical space of, of, of you and your team discussing this story. So you've discovered that there's this, there's this tool kit that's being sort of rented or sold in, in sort of various nefarious channels. How, you know, if I think about a, a phishing toolkit, what's the value? And I'm sort of purposely asking a sort of a silly question here. But if I think about it from the perspective of your team writing this story, what's the purpose of of telling this story about something that's ultimately for the attackers? Like, what you know, uh, you're telling the story of a tool that is for the attackers to go and, you know, create and launch and run campaigns. If there are sort of automated detections that exist across various, you know, products, whether they're from Microsoft or otherwise, to sort of shut this stuff down, what's the value in telling that story? Because wouldn't someone just say, oh, I've got a security product that's looking for IOCs and it's got AI in the background and it's updating daily. So why do I need to learn about this stuff? And so I'm wondering, like, how do you think about that question from the perspective of deciding which story to tell and how to tell it? 
So that is a great question. And usually my answer to that is always the same, which is you can't rely on your security appliances, especially when it comes to phishing, because the actors are always going to look at ways to get around security appliances. And so we want security appliances and we want our security software and we want our AI to be the thing that's going to save us always. But like I kind of mentioned earlier, it doesn't necessarily have to be something malicious in the email in order for a phishing email to be a phishing email, right? Like social engineering phishing emails exist. And all that all that has to happen for a social engineering phishing email to work is that a user interaction has to take place. And the reason why phishing email is so successful is because the user is the biggest liability in that situation. And so like your security appliance can't protect you from a user clicking on something or can't protect you from like that user interaction always. And so the reason why we want to get more education out there around the types of phishing emails happening or around these types of campaigns is because the more education that's out there, the more that we educate our users, the better it's going to be overall for these types of attacks. Yeah, it's a sort of a scary thought that a phishing email doesn't have to include a compromised attachment with a macro that that downloads malware in the background or or a link, an obfuscated link that that takes you somewhere and and scrapes a token or a credential from your site. Like a phishing email can literally be an email that is sent to you that causes you to interact with someone or something and give them some information or or just, you know, establishes a line of communication. I mean, it's an important distinction, but it's sort of a little scary. Especially when they're offering free lunch or something. Everyone clicks on the free lunch Oh, I always say yes to free lunch. Always. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The user education with the free puppy pictures. That's always my favorite story. (laughs) You can always get everybody with free puppy pictures, you know. I think, yes, it sounds scary, but I think like all uh, crime out there, like it's just perspective, right? Like it sounds scary, but I think when we look at technology overall, it's not necessarily something that we need to all of a sudden, you know, decide that even our email needs to frighten us. I think it's just one of those things that as long as we understand that this is a possibility and just have it in like the back of our minds that these are things that can exist and do exist out there, then it's just something that kind of becomes part of our environment in our working environment and doesn't necessarily need to frighten us. That education just adds to like the safety of the overall working environment. And Rachel, I would like to go in a time machine right now. And I would love for you to back up to where you began. What was your story of how you got here? We talked a little bit earlier and it's got a lot of interesting little pieces. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a high level of your journey to to Microsoft writing and uh, threat intelligence. Yeah. I like to say I tripped my way into cyber threat intelligence and just into cybersecurity in general. But overall, I've always been in the intelligence community. I think in heart, like 
in my heart, I've always been an Intel person. Almost 20 years ago, I started in the military. I was in the United States Air Force as an airborne linguist. I went to Monterey, California and studied Mandarin Chinese. And I did that for almost seven years. It was an amazing experience and I really loved it. And when I got out, I started working at Booz Allen Hamilton, which is a government contractor. Uh, And like most government contractors, I worked on way too many contracts all at once, right? Doing a little bit of everything. And one of the things I got to do is a contract that did social media monitoring, which is basically a really nice way of saying internet stalking. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I also got to learn some OSINT work and I got to learn some social engineering skills. Of course, at the time, because I had never done anything cybersecurity related, I didn't know that these were like the words for it. I just got to play on social media all day, which to me seemed really interesting after being in the military for so many years. But once that contract had ended, I got an opportunity to work with Cyber Foresight, which was Booz Allen Hamilton's cyber threat intelligence team. And when I originally interviewed with them, the job rec just kind of said, do you know these four languages and do you know intelligence? And of course, I knew both of those, but I didn't know words like hacktivism or nation states. And I kind of just talked them into giving me a chance. And I said, you know, I can write and I know intelligence and uh, I'm sure you can teach me cyber. And they took a chance on me and I worked with them for three years. And it was amazing. I learned so much about the tech field and the cyber threat intelligence field and just cybersecurity in general. And I'm so happy I got that opportunity. But it was pure luck that I kind of stumbled into cybersecurity at the time. And because I was with Booz Allen Hamilton, I got this amazing opportunity in February of 2015 to work on a contract with Target, the retailer. And I started on that contract and eventually moved from a contractor to a full-time employee with Target, starting off first in strategic intelligence and moving to technical intelligence, eventually certifying in incident response and threat detection. And then I moved to doing offensive security, got to do pen testing. And I will say, having done both blue team and red team, it is fun to play the role of the bad guy and got to put a lot of my social engineering skills to the test. And a year ago, I got the opportunity to come over to Microsoft and get back to my threat intel roots, which is always great, and come over and run the customer-ready intelligence team. I think it's awesome you know both sides, because in order to protect yourself against the hacker, you have to be able to think like the hacker. So I've heard so many stories of folks in the same situation where they they either learn both sides or they started off on the one side and go, maybe I should go to the uh, the, the good side. But it's, it's that thought, that, that mindset of like, what would you do if you were on the other side? So that's awesome that you, you kind of been, been able to flip to both sides just to kind of get the whole picture on how would I break into this? Or what would I do if I was thinking in a, a negative way on, on this? Yeah, it definitely put into 
perspective, a lot of things that I thought I knew being on the blue side, I thought I understood how our defenses worked. I thought I understood how our security products worked. And then being on the pen testing side and actually having a team that tested those products, I understood that there was a lot of nuance in those products and how they worked and how secure they were. And I felt like I actually understood security in depth a lot more seeing those nuances and hearing those conversations conversations from like an engineering perspective and the perspective of like how things are actually implemented. So I I felt like it was a very robust experience that I'm so glad I got a chance to have. Rachel, one of the the topics or the ideas we like to explore on the podcast is the idea of of everyone having a very different journey into cybersecurity and coming from from very very different and sort of diverse backgrounds. So, you you started you said in the Air Force as as an airborne linguist. Was language your passion initially? What came first? You know, are you able to sort of like point to a single thing that that drew you into that? Oh, okay. So this is going to sound very silly, but I joined the military because I grew up in Ohio and I was poor. And when you are poor and in Ohio, you join the military. I was 16 and a junior, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And as I was exploring colleges, my family could not afford. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to study. And I realized like a lot of people that I've heard many people say, you know, it's really hard at 16, 17 to try to figure out what you want your degree to to be in. And when you're in the situation where you can't really afford a degree, it's really hard to make that decision at 17, like what you're going to be for the rest of your life. And I saw the military as a good alternative to that. You know, this was 2003. And so at the height of a war, there was a lot of people going into the military. It was a really good option at the time. I don't know if you guys know a lot about like how they make decisions on what your job is in the military, but it has a lot to do with aptitude tests. So I didn't even know anything about languages or anything like that. I just took a lot of tests and they told me that I was, uh, I had aptitude for languages. <laughs> uh, and they gave me a few options and the options were Korean, Chinese, or Arabic. And I had asked Somebody that was sitting at a desk that asked me to make a decision at boot camp, what they knew about any of the languages. And they said, well, if you choose Arabic, it's 2003, you're going to go to a war zone. I hear the Korean teachers are mean. And I said, well, sign me up for Chinese. (laughs) And I realized that now knowing Mandarin Chinese is a really amazing skill set, and I really lucked into having one of these really amazing things. Like, I have a great skill, especially knowing cybersecurity. It couldn't have worked out more perfectly. But when I say that I had a lot of luck and timing on my side when it came to my career, I think that a lot of people find it very... They think that I'm joking, but like I made a whim decision based on some woman's recommendation of telling me that the teachers are mean (laughs) when I was sitting at boot camp on like two hours. So if the teachers had said the Korean teachers are really funny and awesome and they have the best snacks, you would be here as a Korean language expert instead of a, a Chinese language expert. Is that right? (laughs) <laughs> probably like i i was running on like two hours of sleep 
I wanted to learn Hebrew. Mm. So like before this, they play you this amazing video that makes it look like you're going to go to a college where you can wear real clothes and ask you to write down what you want your language to be. And I wrote Hebrew. And then they take me to a room and say, oh, no, you scored really high. (laughs) You can't have Hebrew. You can have these three languages. And I said, I don't know anything about those languages. What do you know? That's what you get for being so good. And I'm 17. (laughs) And yeah, I'd never been away from home before. Like, this is the first major decision I'd ever made in my entire life was to join the military. The first flight I ever got on in my entire life was my flight to boot camp. I went down, made an entire decision to learn Chinese. They expected me to make decisions like I was an adult and knew what I was going to do with my life. Wow. No one to talk to. I was by myself. Like, it was just pure wow. luck. Wow. And then, and then so you, you spent that time in the Air Force, and then from there you go to Booz Allen Hamilton. At what point did you start to get a, you know, a whiff of cybersecurity as a space, if not a career? Was that at that point, or was that sort of at some point during your tenure with, with the Booz Allen Hamilton company? Yeah. So at Booz Allen Hamilton, they had started looking into the space of cyber threat intelligence. And they had created this idea of cyber foresights. And when I started with them, it was just this idea of strategic intelligence reports, right? So like they were sending out these daily reports of basically like really truncated RSS feeds that were very specific to the clientele that they had. But they only had a few clients at the time because it was brand new, right? So we only had like four clients when I started and only a couple of analysts. And by the time I left, you know, that was up to 22 clients and a whole host of analysts on several shifts. And, you know, it had really taken off. But I had started on that project in 2012. So like, just as an industry, it wasn't something that I think was just a huge industry overall. Like, I don't think cyber threat intelligence was being sold, like, as a major industry at the time. So I think that, like, timing-wise, not only was Booz Allen Hamilton starting in on it, I think just overall, it was something relatively new. So when you look at places like Mandiant and FireEye, who were also creating offerings at the time, they were using prior military linguists, prior military members and government intel officers. And they were using this traditional military intelligence, these analysts that had done military intelligence to do these cyber intel reports. And so when we look at those first few years, it's definitely that more military style intelligence catered towards a cyber topic. And I think that I had just gotten in at like some of those initial like offerings just at the right time, just like everybody else. And so I I definitely think it was luck there at those first few years. Now, I I don't know when they started, but the Air Force has the Cyber Patriots program where they work with students. And I think that's, to your point, it's like it's understanding like, okay, this is an important thing. We should probably start focusing on this earlier. I love that program. I think that's a great program to try to get kids involved in understanding, you know, what is cybersecurity? What does that mean? But um, also to your point, like folks with uh, looking for signals, like signals is what makes, you know, shows you what's going to happen for a lot of things. So, Rachel, 
There are a lot of people that are going to be listening that are not doing what you're doing, but they're going to be very interested because it's an amazing role that you have and also an amazing journey. So if you were going to give advice or guidance for folks that maybe aren't even in the cybersecurity world, but would like to enter it and, and focus more onto the threat until writing or are already in cybersecurity and want to pivot, do you have any advice on like, where's a good place to start? What are some things to study? How would you go about doing that if you were going to start over? I actually get this question a lot, uh, which is, how do I break into cybersecurity or how do I break into threat intelligence? And I think one of the biggest hindrances that people always have is not wanting to apply for those positions until they feel like they're absolutely ready. And I will say one of the things that helped me with my career journey was taking that leap of faith. Like, I feel like I probably applied for those roles before I personally felt like I was ready or I had all the skill sets or or 100% of the skill sets that I probably could have or would have if I had waited till I was comfortable with those roles uh, before I applied. And I think that that is what I would push people for if I were to give them advice is to uh, kind of push yourself to apply to those roles maybe a little before you're ready. I think that's where a lot of people struggle uh, is thinking that they have to have all the certifications or study all the skills before they apply. And then as far as what do they need to study or what do they need to learn before they get in, a lot of times I would say an easy place to start is the SOC. I know it's like cliche, but I think a lot of people start in the SOC because one, it's a good entry level place. You learn a lot working on the different incidents and working different SOC cases or working within like security centers or within incident response. And then from there, a lot of places will actually branch out to threat detection or threat intelligence or some of the other niche areas within threat intelligence. So if you're looking to get into some of the more unique areas, I would definitely suggest starting in that centralized area within incident response. I also love that you applied even if you didn't feel you were quite ready. That's a huge Plus, I mean, a lot of people won't won't apply until they have 100% of the qualifications. And also, I think it's really important to be able to be in an interview and say, I don't know, because I know I've done that before. And it's so much easier than trying to fit into a space that you maybe don't, but then they might appreciate that because that's room for you to grow or for them to mold you in the way you want. So kudos to you for just going for it. That's awesome. And then, Rachel, I'd love if you wouldn't mind to talk a little bit about you know, mentorship or the role of sort of the community. You know, I'm thinking about that meeting you had, you said when you were 16 and you didn't know anything about the three, you did the aptitude test and there's three languages that they want you to choose. You don't know any of them. And, you know, you, you, you essentially, you said you just went and asked somebody and while they may have been a little flippant in there, like, you know, the Korean teachers are mean, don't choose Korean. How has the role of sort of mentorship and guidance and sort of community, um, you know, played a part in your career? And and what kind of what kind of advice would you give for others in the industry to be out be on the lookout for mentorship and be on the lookout for for guidance and support to come from from the community? I think mentorship is really important, and I think that especially as you're first starting out, it's really important to find a good mentor because 
a lot of times people in cybersecurity can suffer from imposter syndrome and that mentorship, even a peer mentor can really help you overcome those first few months of that imposter syndrome of thinking that like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing or I'm in over my head or I'm not sure this was the right career path. I think I got myself into something that I'm not ready for. Like, I think we've all gone through that at some point in time. And that mentorship and that leadership is really what's going to get you over that hump. And because we're a community and because this industry still feels like a community, that mentorship is so easy to find. All right. Rachel, thank you. Love all the information you gave us. I have one more question, and this is not about work or cyber. What does Rachel love outside of cybersecurity? What is something that you're another passion of yours? Right now, I really love reading YA fantasy books. I've always been a reader, and right now my passion is the young adult fantasy genre. It captures my attention. It is my go-to. I can finish one within like a Saturday afternoon. That's amazing. What are you reading right now? Right now, A Court of Thorns and Roses. I know this one. I think I might even have this one downloaded. I'm going to have to go back it's to really that. It's really good. I, I admit I am a fan too. I love it. I love those types of books. They're great. And then final question is if folks are, that are listening want to find you, you know, do you have a Twitter alias or are you just mainly on LinkedIn? Is there a way that folks can reach out if they have any questions or follow up from this episode? So I am available on LinkedIn and I do have a Twitter. My Twitter handle is soulcrusher86. Yes. You can find me heavily judging the swag given out at conferences. Awesome. We'll have to send you some blue hat swag and get a rating out of five stars for that. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for being on the Blue Hat podcast. And uh, we look forward to hearing more from you and your team on threat intelligence stories in the future. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat at microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.